to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, recording today on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And this week, I'm joined by Lynn Gallagher. Lynn is CEO of Energy Consumers Australia, the national voice for residential and small business energy consumers. Lynn, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. Um, energy Consumers Australia plays a pretty big role in ensuring the needs of smaller energy consumers are front and centre as we work through this this energy transition. Uh, can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about the organisation? Yeah, I think where I'll start is uh, we're a national organisation uh, whose sole purpose really is to bring the interests of all households and small businesses into the into all the processes and debates and dialogue that's happening around Australia's energy transition. Uh, so that means we have to understand uh, what's happening uh, for people uh, and and what what a better energy future, a better transition looks like for them. I know. You've been, I want to say, CEO for a couple of years. A couple of years now. I, I think, you know, like have a pandemic and get appointed CEO <laughs> a, a, of, a, of an industry and a, and, a, and a social transformation the like of which we've never seen. Oh, so for that reason, while we've we've chatted on the phone and we, we've only just been starting to catch up again in person here in 2022 and I was lucky enough to get into the ECA offices um you know, a couple of months ago, and, and you brought some of your team in, and it was really actually exciting, see, sort of seeing that that next generation of ECA folk that you, you're bringing on board, Lynn. And there seems to be a, a real focus on a cross disciplinary approach, bringing a lot of different ways of thinking about the sort of issues and, and, and challenges of energy consumers. Um, Bring people that can think about them in, in different ways. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's something that we've been really consciously doing. I think in these kinds of transitions, uh, which are fundamental to, you know, people's well-being, mm-hmm. um, you know, comfortable homes, competitive businesses, there isn't a one-size-fits-all uh, one solution and this is not to diminish the role of the sort of engineering challenge or how economists analyse uh, how the transition needs to play out, but it won't surprise you that what we've done is collected a group of people that range from human geography to law uh, to sociology to um you know, engineering, economics, the built environment. And I guess my philosophy behind that has been diversity uh, is a great thing. Uh, And if we can model uh, internally, uh, if you like, the sort of creative tensions between trying to resolve uh, all of the challenges and opportunities we face, then we're going to be much more effective as an advocate, uh, as someone that can influence um, outcomes because we've had to go through that kind of process of interdisciplinary dialogue ourselves. It's, it's a really good point, Lynn, and it won't surprise you to hear that um, this wonky energy efficiency podcast has, has a bunch of listen, listeners that are more on the, on the policy side uh, and the technical side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on was to sort of unpack that idea because um, really uh, households and small businesses are experiencing this transition in a way that can be pretty different to those of us that are kind of 
swimming in it day to day and, you know, engaging with that transformation enthusiastically, if I can put it like that. You're sort of alive to the challenges and motivated to solve them. But what's it like for consumers? Like how, how are consumers experiencing this transition? Is that even the right question to be asking? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question and, you know, uh, I'm on the policy wonk spectrum myself mm. and, you know, there's a tendency that's a sort of safe and comfortable zone. Um, but, again, for an organisation like ours, we occupy a pretty powerful, we have a pretty powerful purpose. Mm. And the thing that we've really um, been prioritising in the last little while is rather than assume we know um, rather than going and, you know, reading the latest, I don't know, interesting sort of piece of market research, we're really prioritising that this is uh, such a societal transformation that really it has to be part of our DNA to create opportunities to listen to consumers, uh, to talk with them, uh, to hear what their needs and interests are, and then to speak to those. Um, and then I guess the secret sizzle, the magic sauce, is is translating that into what that really means for, for policy action. Mm-hmm. But it has to be really grounded in real consumer experience and I guess I hope I won't offend anybody by saying this, but one of one of the things I often say in a lot of the sort of policy discussions we have is I often say we talk about our imaginary friends. <laughs> in other words, consumers, you know, whatever it is we're proposing to do, here's a policy that's going to solve the problem and all consumers are our imaginary friend and they're going to love it. They're going to think, <laughs> uh, you know, turning solar off is great and, <laughs> Uh, turning my air conditioning on in the middle of the day when I'm not home is great. Um, so we have to we have to walk back from you know wish fulfillment, I guess, yeah. uh, and confront the reality and and let them. I guess part of also what I'm saying is let them speak for themselves. Let them tell us this is not okay or can you find a better way of doing it because that's just not going to work for me. Well. It's something that I think a lot about, Lynn, because uh, social license for a lot of that sort of stuff that you're talking about, which is about you know placing trust in, in you know, aggregators or energy companies to have some control about how um, those resources behind the meter is used. Social trust is a, is a real massive issue, and how you get to a point relatively rapidly, given how, how quickly our energy system is transforming, how you get to that point where there is that trust and, you know, folk are so willing to say, well, you know, if you can demonstrate a benefit, I'm willing to give you some control versus the, I guess, the practice of the last 10, 15 years, which has been more of a two-fingered salute <laughs> from consumers yeah, yeah, exactly. to anyone involved in the energy industry. That is a, that is a, that is a big challenge. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's almost a, a theoretical appreciation that that's an issue, but perhaps, you know, we've got a bit of a journey to go on to actually sort of think through, you know, in practical terms, how we, how we rebuild that trust or, or, or continue rebuilding it. Cause I think we actually have made a little bit of progress over the last few years. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. I think as, uh, as prices have come down, we're seeing it in our own surveys, which we do regularly of two and a half thousand uh, consumers. So that's 2000 households and 500 small businesses. 
you know, they sort of feel like things are better, um, things like things that governments have done post the uh, Australian Competition and Consumer Commission Retail Pricing Inquiry, which really focused the community on uh, this is just not working. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. It's too confusing. And I feel out of control. So I, I think we have made inroads, but trust is, uh, you know, hard won and easily lost. So I guess the thing I often say in in rooms that you and I are in, Luke, often is if we invited, you know, people from Burke Street Mall or Pitt Street Mall or Rundle Mall into this conversation and said to them, hey, we have this vision of a future in which um, if you've got solar, we're going to be turning you off more often during the day, but you know, don't worry about it because it won't happen that often and it's only a couple of cents and, you know, we'll make you consume from the grid in that time. But, you know, you, it's not like you'll go without a power supply, so that's okay. And, you know, again, I was talking a bit earlier about, you know, we can switch things on and off for you. It's a bit like people will be going and why and who benefits and you know, because a lot of people, and, you know, we can talk a bit about solar customers, but, I mean, a lot of people have basically said, here's a technology, we're willing to invest quite a bit of money to put it on our roof, and we're doing it because we um, we have different values, which might be, or a range of values, which might be, you know, we, we want to contribute to addressing climate change or we believe in community, and, frankly, I can also save some money and I can feel a bit independent and now we're going to say to them, oh, but you didn't know that you're part of the system and all of those things that you thought you were opting out of, we'd now like to co-opt you back in, right? So you sort of go, okay, that's sort of, I'm not sure how that's going to, you know, work at the barbecue. But the next point I want to make, though, is just so we're not talking just about solar. Again, we talk a lot about policy, but I keep bringing people back to cost of living. And if you look at how electricity prices have tracked over the last decade, they're still at historically high levels. Like they bump up a bit and they bump up down a bit, but they're still around 30 cents a kilowatt hour retail. And for something that we use a lot of when it's hot, when it's cold, um, you know, that's, that's a problem. So people feel the pressure of electricity bills. So we, we've got all these things that are at play, but those of us who are policy wonks are thinking about how do we operate the system. Yeah, which to some degree is understandable because things are shifting so bloody quickly, right? And so from a technical perspective, there are there are plenty of people that I talk to and I know you talk to, Lynn, that feel like they're on a burning platform and yeah. you know, we need to solve these issues as quickly as possible and going and having coffee catch-ups with the folk in Burke Street Mall is a luxury that we don't have. <laughs> But the reality is that if we don't find a way of doing that engagement, uh, then, you know, there's go- we're going to sort of hit, hit a point where the, that, that social license completely deteriorates. And it's really hard to know if that is the case, if, if, if trust doesn't keep slowly building, but in fact goes in the other direction, what the response of government would be in that context. Yeah, exactly right. And I guess what it comes down to is it's just remembering who we're designing for, right? And 
I guess it goes back to my team and why I have all these amazing uh, young graduates and people who are, you know, three to four years into their career because they're going to live with this system for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we bring to uh, really to thinking about system design and to your point about social trust and social license, if it doesn't operate at a human level, if it doesn't operate at a people level, if it doesn't recognise, you know, what urban economists, sociologists like to talk about place, if it doesn't recognise social practice. So all of those things are not things that come into the room when we're talking about, you know, synchronous condensers or uh, curtailment for big and small solar or, you know, or insert name of acronym that nobody will know what it means unless you already know what it means. Um, so that's the challenge for us. That this has to be a people, people and and society driven challenge. So it sounds, Lynn, and I'm I'm sort of reading between the lines here. And tell me if I'm off on a off on a tangent. It sounds like you're suggesting that we need to build a basic level of literacy about what this transition uh, encompasses and, and why we're asking the things of consumers that we're likely to be asking over the next 5, 10, 15 years, um, not turning them into electrical engineers, but, you know, a base level understanding where they go, oh, yeah, that sort of makes sense in the same way that people kind of have their head around the idea that they have, you know, they can stick a solar panel on the roof and, you know, it's generating electricity in the system and they, they get some money for that, 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 that base level literacy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point and then I'm going to take it to a slightly different place. I, I think that's right. I guess literacy or however you want to do it, what I would say is we built social licence and the way that we operate electricity and, if you like, the energy system over 100 years, yep. right? And because, it's, you know, and we did great things. I mean, we brought electricity to people who didn't have electricity. So, you know, the kind of development we've had in the electricity grid over the last 100 years has really been a huge transformation. But now we have to do do it all over again. And so you can't do it unless it's informed by you know, how people are willing to participate, um, what's going to, to, to be asked, what's going to be asked of them, I guess. Hey team, uh, Luke here with a quick speaker update for the National Energy Efficiency Conference 2022 taking place uh, in Melbourne on the 25th and 26th of May, just around the corner. We've got a second international speaker joining us, uh, Carsten Muller, German parliamentarian and chair of our sibling organisation, DENEF, uh, in Germany, is, is going to be with us, is going to be in the view from Europe, obviously an incredible time in energy policy in Europe, and, and we can't wait to hear from him on the evening of the 25th. But there's just so many uh, other global and local leaders uh, that are going to be giving you their insights over the course of the two days. Uh, Anthea Harris from the ESB, Tim Goodson from the IEA, Gary Rake from the Building Codes Board, uh, Ian Learmont, CFC, Duncan McIntyre uh, from Dizer. We've got Heidi Lee from BZE, Cassandra Goldie from ACOS, Ken Morrison from the Property Council. The list goes on. Um, and the, the, the best thing about this is all of these incredible individuals and, and many more besides have committed to be there in person with you in the room, uh, sharing their thoughts and uh, taking your questions. Uh, it's going to be great to be back in a room with all of you. Um, if your interest is peaked, you don't have a lot of time left, so I encourage you to pause the podcast, uh, get on your favourite web browser and uh, type in EEC, 
www.ruchtorg.au forward slash conference. Get your ticket. I can't wait to see you there. Okay, well, there's a sort of a, a really tangible, grounded sort of discussion that we can have, which I think is really challenging to talk to consumers about, but is actually really, really crucial, which is this idea of making sure we don't sort of over-invest in the network as we move through this transition. Many of us are pretty cautious about the risks of over-investment in network assets following what we saw in the late 2000s and the quote-unquote gold plating of the system back then and, and what that meant for consumers. Um, but there's also no doubt that investment in the network is going to be absolutely crucial to support you know, a 21st century energy system. There are things that we need to need to fix up, and there's there's ways in which the network needs to be augmented. How do we how do we balance those competing interests and get the size of the network investment right? <laughs> yeah, I could I could earn a lot of money by answering that. <laughs> I don't need the easy answer to that question, but I guess I guess often you know. I agree with you there, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, we can't get to the renewable energy future without significant investment in in network capacity. So I guess from a consumer point of view, what we often are saying is, you know, the costs come early and the benefits come later. Uh, And there was a, a wonderful woman who worked in Australia originally from the UK who used to refer to consumers always being promised jam tomorrow. <laughs> um, so, you know, ja- you know, consumers want jam today. Um, so I guess, again, we can't sort of just stop at the engineering or the economics. This is a question of if you're absolutely persuaded, and many policy people are, and I am too, that when we get to the other side of eliminating coal and eliminating coal uh, sooner rather than later is, you know, certainly something I think is a good thing as long as we can still um, meet, you know, people's energy needs. Um, so you actually just have to work quite hard at it and you also have to go, we shouldn't be asking consumer bills or consumers to be paying in their bills uh, for waiting for the benefits to flow. And if I can sort of again just return to that point, you know, in, when we made electricity in municipal you know, power stations in real terms, the price of electricity was 30 cents a kilowatt hour retail. And it fell for the next 50 years. And then in the last 10, 15 years, thanks to a wave of investment, which, you know, was needed to a, to a point, but we all think there was some excess capacity and I explain what I, how I think about that. But irrespective of that, consumers are now paying 30 cents retail again. So, What we say really is every dollar of investment has to really be utilised to its full capacity. That's how you make the price per unit cheaper. Do you mean if if you're putting up transmission uh, capacity or investment in transmission, you put up investment in distribution uh, and it only gets used, you know, to its full capacity some of the time, that's what's appearing in consumer bills, whereas you get the more use out of it, um, 
And I guess what I'd say making, you know, making some of this uh, dilemma easier to, you know, resolve, certainly in relation to distribution investment, is electric vehicles are the game changer. If all that network capacity is used during the day uh, to charge vehicles, we won't actually have to pay you know, significantly more to accommodate a large amount of electric vehicle charging. Yeah, um, I mean, they're a really important piece in the puzzle, but I suppose this is where we, we get to the, the bit of the conversation which is super relevant for, you know, the, the remit of, of this show, which is you know, energy efficiency, energy management, like that utilisation of capacity, Lynn, like that's, that's, a, that's a big part of how we ensure that there is uh, that goal being achieved is effective energy management across the day, an effective sort of uh, management of demand and supply side resources, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, it trips off the tongue when you say it. Uh, but the challenge for me is then how do I how do I put that in front of a room, room full of you know uh, ordinary people going about their ordinary lives? What am I what am I actually trying to tell them uh, they need to do? How am I going to make this possible for them? Um, and so that's what's really led us to have what I think was a much more integrated agenda, uh, which includes energy efficiency. So, in a, in, in, you know, in a sort of historical context, I guess, you know, his energy efficiency was fashionable and then unfashionable. And then, you know, we all ran around thinking about price signals and everything else. And, you know, something as boring as insulating housing or insulating, um, you know, having insulation in small businesses was, you know, very passe. Um, well, I actually think now it's come back front centre because, you know, here we are, solar during the day is going to create an absolute abundance of energy, an amazing amount of abundance of energy until the sun starts to dip below the horizon. So the more you can use all of that energy uh, during the day, but, of course, people use a lot of energy now or a lot of electricity now in the morning as they're getting ready for work or their day and in the evening, you know, when they're winding down and doing things for their family. We have small businesses who use a lot of electricity, you know, like I, I like to call after dark, uh, so insulation, energy efficiency, and all forms of local storage are the things that are going to enable people easily to use that abundant energy. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, then I think about so I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of that, those consumers and how we sort of talk about that story and it's sort of talking about health and, and comfort yeah. and sort of quality of life, the, you know, the idea that, you know, you are warm in your home and in, because of the poor quality of Australian housing stock, particularly pre-2005 before sort of minimum energy performance standards came in, it is, it is it's pretty crap yeah. <laughs> in terms of thermal performance. And so people are cold and they are spending a lot more than they need to. And, you know, we do have all these people dealing with, you know, issues around hypothermia and the like. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you used a great word earlier in our conversation, which is sort of translation. And it's like, well, you know, we can have the technical conversations of how those things are achieved. Um, but some of at least or a lot of what we need to talk to consumers about is like the, the practical benefits that they will accrue, you know, if we can if we can pursue this pathway. So it's in terms of this transition piece and, and bringing people along for a journey, 
I like to think about it as not we're just going through all of this change and in terms of your your lived experience, it's just going to be the same. It's got to be better. Yeah. <laughs> to be worth yeah. all the – I mean, and yes, you know, obviously we're, well, there's, a, there's a keen interest from many, if not all of us, in just maintaining a safe climate and that is a goal in and of itself. But, you know, in terms of bringing a community along for a journey, um, that's going to be a hell of a lot easier if – what they end up with in terms of a system, in terms of a, a home, in terms of a, a business that they're working in, is actually it's more comfortable. Um, they're happier, they're healthier. That's going to be that's going to be a much easier sell, I think. Yeah, I agree, and I think where that uh, discussion takes me too is is thinking about a couple of things that have come out of the UK Citizens' Assembly, which is people people can see that you know, the link theoretically between, you know, putting in insulation or getting off gas, um, all of these things they need to do. But what stops them is, you know, a lack of advice, upfront capital costs. Um, If I do it, if I do it, does it benefit me? So the thing that's really coming out of the UK is creating a sense in which people can be supported to make these decisions. You know, in Australia, we've tended to treat this as a sort of, you know, private benefit, private cost. Whereas I think, um, particularly when you think about rental housing, when you think about um, low-income housing, when you think about people who don't have access to solar because they don't don't have a roof, they've got apartments, um, this is another way of bringing about social inclusion by creating this as a shared enterprise. This is a, a shared collective endeavour to make sure that our homes are, you know, not uh, not of a kind that are creating huge energy costs and that that's an inevitable part of the energy transition as well. And it's not just, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the best house in the best street, you know, has the 10 star ratings and everybody else is living in a glorified tent, you know, and the thing you and I've talked about is, you know, to bring that about on the scale we need to achieve it in the time we need to achieve it, you know, retrofitting 10 million homes is not a simple exercise and we haven't really talked about, you know, the transition away from gas, but broadly, uh, you know, we will not be burning fossil fuels in our home in 2050. So, you know, there there are some who believe hydrogen is, is a possible pathway, but at this point you can't buy a hydrogen appliance down at your local good guys. So people are going to start thinking, well, you know, if I'm having to do these things in my home, I may as well deal with all the problems at once is one sort of segment of our community. But another segment of the community says, tell me the stages in which I need to do it. Like, let's make the pain stretch out over the longest period of time so I can manage. But again, I guess what I'm really saying is the conversations you and I've had is about we've all got to gear up for this. The industry has to gear up. We need workforce. We need we need good advice, independent advice. We need the banking sector and the finance sector to understand this is not a nice to have. This is not like putting up new curtains that are pretty and, you know, um, you know, that you sourced in the latest designer catalogue. This is actually fundamental to keeping energy costs or keeping energy bills, you know, affordable for, you know, for the whole community. And I think that reality that we have this great task before us that we do need to effectively fix pretty much every home in Australia yeah. to some degree or other. 
like that hasn't really dawned. Um, uh, certainly not in public imagination, but I don't even know if it's really dawned among politicians and, and even folk that um, are pretty engaged on the on the energy system side of things. Um, it's that conversation's a lot further along in other parts of the world, as you know, Lynn, like, you know, the, there's been a, a really strong push in, in Europe, for example, around the, the idea that they need to fix all the buildings so that they can get to net zero. Like that is, that is not like a sort of a, a boondoggle on the side. That is a, a core, a core piece of that, that transition pathway and, and doing that transition in a way that's affordable and equitable and is happening at the sort of pace that we need it, need it happen. On. And you can, you know, energy efficiency in its broader sense is is a big part of that, but it's a core plank of the energy transition. I'm sort of, you know, as you know, more and more forming the view that we need a similar sort of effort to take place here in Australia, just to to build that understanding and then and then sort of uh, marshal the resources and the I guess the attention that will allow that ecosystem of industry to build up over time. Um, with the support of you know sensible policy and incentives and all the rest of it to, that will allow that to happen, um, it's a it's a big job, um, and but it's uh, it's one that we need to get on with, I reckon. Yeah, and you know, I'm in absolute agreement with you. The way the parallel I draw with it is, you know, I've seen a number of you know amazing communities on Facebook and um, you know um, membership organisations that are really driving this, and to me. It really feels like, if you like, the beginning of the sort of, you know, evolution really or revolution in Australia of putting solar on your roof. You know, once, you know, it's fashionable to think that, you know, a lot of the early adopters put solar on the roof because they were getting extraordinarily feeding tariffs. But even as those tariffs came down, or, you know, feeding rates, but as those, those came down, you know, the revolution kept going. And it sort of feels to me like with energy efficiency now in Australia that we're still at that sort of early stage where it's it's really dawned on people this is a, an essential thing, an amazing thing, and they're forming communities around it. What we now need to do, which I think to your point, what they're doing in Europe particularly well and they've done it in the US for years, it's not always been as well-funded as it needs to be, but, again, there's a sense in which this is a structural, uh, you know, whole of government, whole of community, and and you have to you have to put all the building blocks in place. So I think we're just on the on the edge of that. But if we are going to get to 2050 uh, and have net zero emissions in our homes, um, this is absolutely essential. And you know, in that I I really do agree with Saul Griffiths, who you know is talking a lot about electrification and solar. But again, this is really all homes and not. It's not just solar. It's got to be opportunities to, um, you know, basically create comfortable homes for everyone. Yeah, that's right. So in, in, in practical terms, just to ground it, because, you know, <laughs> I think we, we, we sometimes tend to, uh, to, to talk at a, a big picture level. But what that practically means is that, you know, making sure that we've got an industry of trades and professionals that can, that can go and do these upgrades, whether it's to insulation or it's, you know, uh, swapping out a, a gas hot water system for a heat pump hot water system, um, you know, reverse cycle air conditioners, and then having the the standards 
that will support the use of those resources at the, the right time of the day, you know, the ability to do preheating and pre-cooling, the ability for water systems to turn on in the middle of the day instead of the middle of the night, as many of them do right now. Like this is why there's there's a there's a journey to go on because it's we're asking, you know, hundreds of thousands of professionals right across the country to build new skills. We're also, you know, there's a literacy piece around the um, the understanding of, of households and, and what they should be asking for and what they could be asking for, what is possible, um, what is plausible in terms of, you know, improving their homes over time. And then there's kind of the, the, the policies and the incentives frameworks that kind of put some guardrails on that and build momentum over time. That, that's that's kind of my off the top of my head list of things that we might need to get to 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 enable this. Um, uh, am I missing anything? Pretty similar list. It's a pretty similar list. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, we're almost out of time, but there's one thing I wanted to just check in with you on because I think it's super interesting and it's a discussion around nomenclature. I, I saw a video <laughs> on your YouTube channel that dropped a couple of days ago and it was a, I read it as a short, sharp pitch for us to stop talking about distributed energy resources and start talking about consumer energy resources. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to just to in, in the last minutes of the, uh, the show today, um, unpack that for us then. You know, we're sitting in uh, a lot of policy dialogues and things and talking about distributed energy resources uh, and, you know, what we're referring to is the solar on people's roofs, the electric vehicles in their driveways, the batteries uh, in their home and the batteries in their neighbourhoods. And it just doesn't make sense if you're a consumer. You're going, well, I paid for those and they're on my roof and or they're in my home or they're in my neighbourhood and I might have paid for them, I might have contributed to the cost of that local storage or, you know, I might have been part of a, a you know, co-funding program with government for having local neighbourhood storage. So the concept that they're distributed, uh, it just doesn't make sense from a consumer point of view. Um, and, and the reason as well is that one of the things I said in a, in a webinar last year is consumers don't know that there's really an energy system. They're making their own weather. They're making their own energy system. And to them, the larger thing that we think of as the bulk power supply system is other. It's the thing that's distributed. It's the thing that's far, far away. Um, so if we don't keep remembering that these are assets that consumers own, consumers pay for, um, I'll finish with the line that we used in the blog and in the video, which is, you know, nobody drove their electric vehicle into the driveway and invited their neighbour over and said, look at my distributed energy resource. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> um, so I think it's really important to reframe a lot of these challenges because we essentially want the behaviour of these assets owned by consumers to uh, to basically be beneficial to the system, to be beneficial to the people who own them. But I think we often think more about the system than we think about the people who've actually paid for them. I, I was delighted to see this video. Um, I think it's really powerful. I know that some people will think, well, you're just you're swapping one word for another. Yeah, we're just taking a C and a D and making it a C. <laughs> but you know what? Um, you know, the, the, the words matter. Yeah. And if every time that you refer to these resources, um, it's you have the word consumer yeah. at the heart, and which implies a sense of ownership and a need to engage with the owners of those resources, um, to build a relationship with the owners of those 
resources. I think that's that's actually really, really powerful. And so I think that while um, you know playing with acronyms is is probably not what we want to spend most of our time doing for the next ten <laughs> to twenty years. Yeah, no thanks. This this I think is actually uh, more than justified, and and, and hopefully some, something that uh, gets picked up around the industry. Yeah. So good on you. Well, uh, Lynn, we we are at a time um the care and and thoughtfulness that ECA brings to what can sometimes be pretty hard edged technical conversations is always super refreshing to me um because uh, as we've been discussing you can have all the shiny technology in the world but it's often naught if it doesn't work for consumers so uh, really appreciate you um catching up and, and looking forward to having you with us at the uh, at the conference in in Melbourne I think you're helping us open up the uh, the conference with the opening plenary um so uh, it'll be great to catch up in person again there It'll be great. Thanks, Luke. It was great to, to go through all of this today with you. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find ECA at Energy Voice AU, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, and demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel, your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.